Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 232. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. We have, beginning of the month there, we have Skeet with his Covering the Sofa with art by Richard Wagner. Then we have Hugo Reviews. Andy Thomaswick's dropped us a fact article on the Hugo Reviews. Listen out for that. Then Main Fiction, none other than Neil Gaiman. How about that? Then, to finish off the time, we have Paul Finch with his Theatre of the Mind, looking at old-time radio. Or science fiction old-time radio, should I say. That is sure, 232. I hope you will enjoy it. First off then, Skeet, sir. Hey there, Starship listeners. Skeet here, coming at you with another installment of Covering the Sofa. This month of April, episode number 232 has the phenomenal artist Richard Wagner as our featured artist. Richard is a graphic designer and illustrator living in the United States. His academic schooling consists of a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree with an emphasis in painting and drawings, as well as training in graphic design and illustration. For 19 uh, years, he taught uh, college-level graphic design and photo illustration classes while also freelancing. He now works on his own and enjoys focusing solely on being a designer-illustrator. This month's cover, uh, done by Richard, entitled Beacon, was first featured on issue number 236 of Interzone magazine. Richard uh, wrote me and uh, gave me a little insight into the image. He writes that Beacon is an image made up entirely of photographic images. Eleven images have been used to create this particular photo illustration. The images are combined in Adobe Photoshop using various techniques that 
I've developed through trial and error over the years. Beacon contains 24 total layers, including both image and adjustment layers. Within images like uh, Beacon, I try to develop a sense of a story, an image that not only engages the viewer on a visual level, but also encourages them to seek and discover the story within. The story that they create in their mind may not be the same one that I experience or think about. What's more important to me is that a connection has been made between the viewer and the imagery. I don't care to share what I think of an image is about because I feel that it destroys the opportunity for a discovery by the viewer. But, in a nutshell, is a Beacon is about the return of an advanced civilization that has been gone for quite a long time. In their return to this particular planet, they find that much of what they had developed has fallen into ruin. And with the brief introduction, there is still much left to the imagination and with this image that can be explored and filled in by the viewer. And what inspired me to build this image was the landscape that the bowl-shaped valley uh, provided. There was just something unique about the shape that suggested possibilities to my imagination. Unquote. Uh, Richard has provided a beautiful illustration here, and I'd like to thank Richard Wagner for contributing this wonderful work of art and hope to see more from him. If you'd like to contact Richard Wagner, you can find him at rwagnerenon at att.net. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and back to you, Tony. Richard actually dropped me an email, you know, and showed his kind of his wares, so to speak. And it's just like you think, wow, do you know what I mean? How can people do this? You know, we've got some art coming up in the next couple of months, and you just think, yeah, man, you know what I mean? I've got no talent whatsoever. Oh, anyway, I'm just—it's so lovely to kind of have this kind of quality artwork on there. So, well done, Skeet, sir. Next up is our very own Andy Thomaswick with his Hugo Reviews. Andy, which one now? Hello everyone and welcome back to the Hugo Review. This week I'll be covering The Paladin of Souls by Lois McMaster Bujold. I'll start by saying that the Hugo Award voters must have been in a fantasy mood in the mid-2000s, as this was the first of two fantasy books to win in that era, the other being Jonathan Strange, which I covered last time. However, this book is much more of a standard fantasy novel. By that I mean it's set in a world of magic and monsters. Okay, well not really monsters, but you get the idea. It is a sequel to Bajold's classic book, The Curse of Shalian. Though you can't see this, I'm putting air quotes around sequel, because really the only thing that makes it a sequel is that it's set in the same universe. Characters that were tertiary to the main story of The Curse of Shalian were central to the story of Paladin of Souls, and the main characters in the original barely make an appearance in the sequel. I'll have to admit that I didn't read The Curse of Shalian, and I still haven't, as it didn't win the Hugo Award, and my reading plate is pretty full trying to finish off those. That being said, many reviewers seem to enjoy it more than Paladin of Souls. It sounds like it had a more epic story arc and some other tropes of high fantasies that many fans like to see. I'll also warn you that the premise of Paladin of Souls has some minor spoilers to The Curse of Shalian, and I will be discussing that premise here, so feel free to skip through this if you don't want some of the ending of Bejeweled's other masterpiece ruined for you. 
While you don't need to read The Curse of Shalian to understand the Paladin of Souls, it is strongly recommended, especially if you want a true understanding of the trials that Ista goes through throughout the book. The sequel story isn't necessarily bad in and of itself, it's just not as epic as its predecessor. It centers around Ista, the Queen Mother from the first book, who, after being set free from a curse of madness, decides to travel to see the world. She takes with her very few servants and helpers and tries to make a way for herself in the world. Along the way, she meets a lord who seems to share strange sleeping cycles with his brother, a demon-ridden magician, and a fat priest. They're all caught up in an intrigue involving scouting parties, late-night raids, and divine intervention that comes to a somewhat satisfying conclusion. If you remember last time, I mentioned that if you were expecting the kind of magic-slinging fantasy of Forgotten Realms in Jonathan Strange, you would be sorely disappointed. However, expecting it here is not too far off. Bujold is a much better writer than most of the genre's mainstays, but the story could be put on Feyrun and it would not seem out of place. I personally rather enjoy those kind of stories, as that is what I grew up on. There isn't as much magic slinging and monster bashing as in the Icewind Dale trilogy, but Bujold is a competent action writer, especially given her background with the Vorkosigans. And what action she does choose to describe is well done. But action always centers around characters, and the characters are what make Paladin of Souls stand out from the standard fantasy fair. Their interactions with one another are particularly enjoyable, and Bujold has always been a master of witty banter, but the real crown jewel of the characters is Ista herself. The view inside her mind is unique, as this was the first of the Hugo Awards that I had read that was told from a woman's perspective. However, at times, Ista's thought process falls into what I like to call the crime and punishment syndrome. I won't spoil too much of the story of that tome by stating the main character is crazy. The syndrome part of my explanation comes from the fact that occasionally Dostoevsky will try to describe his madness in written form. To me, as a sane person, it just comes out as complete nonsense, even though I understand that's what he's trying to do. Ista doesn't quite have the same scale of mental problems as Raskolnikov, but there are parts of the book where Bujold attempts to explain her madness that keeps cropping back up from the first book that are remarkably similar in style. Overall, the story is well told and unique, the characters are interesting, and the dialogue is extremely well written. However, there's just something about this book that makes it so that I can't recommend it as highly as I have some of the others that have graced this segment. Maybe it's the fact that I didn't read the prequel and couldn't understand the world as much as I would have liked, maybe the syndrome really got to me, or maybe I'm just a sucker for epicness, as anyone who was raised in the age of Star Wars and Lord of the Rings would be. A good test of why I feel this way would be to get myself a copy of The Curse of Shalian just to get a better read on the world described in this book. But that's all for this edition of the Hugo Review. Next time I'll be covering Hominids by Robert Sawyer, the winner for 2003, which also happens to be my high school graduation year. Thanks for listening, everybody, and please don't forget that some things can only grow out of season. Andy, thank you so much. So, main fiction, Neil Gaiman, no less. You know, I, I, dropped, I dropped Neil, you know, me, me and Neil like that. I dropped him an email that says, I don't suppose there's a chance, is there? And, you know what I mean? If you don't ask, if you don't ask. Well, Neil, thank you so much. This story first appeared in the anthology Stories, All New Tales, which was edited by Neil Gaiman and Al Sarantino. Came out in hardcover by William Morrow HarperCollins in 2010. To be quite honest, it is stunning the kind of the list of writers that are in there. I'll give you a little heads up who's kind of in there. You know, straight away, Roddy Doyle. Do you know what I mean? How cool is that? Then Joyce Carol Oates got in there. Like I say, Neil Gaiman, this story came in. You've got Michael Marshall Smith, Joe R. Lansdale, 
You've got Michael Swanick, Peter Straub, Jeffrey Ford, Lawrence Block. I'm just naming, you know, there is loads more. Gene Wolfe, <laughs> you know what I mean? Tim Powers, Michael Moorcock, Joe Hill, Elizabeth Hand. Do you know what I mean? A stunning collection there. It's well worth it. I'll put a link on to Neil Gaiman's site, which has got this book on there. If you want to go in this anthology, if you want to go and have a look at it. It was also picked up as well, this story, Jonathan Strand, for his The Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year, Volume 5, from Nightshade Books as well, in March 2011. And just out of curiosity, which is kind of making you go over there, the Tales to Terrify as well. Larry's got some. Larry did the went when evening. He mentioned about a... Like an award that Gene Wolfe's done, and Larry went there and took some. And Neil Gaiman was there, and Larry's got some pictures. Our very own Larry Santoro talking to Neil Gaiman and Gaiman on, on this merry go round as well inside this building. So, pretty strange. But it was all for a, a, like, a fantastic award for Gene Wolfe. So, actually, if you go on to one of the, I forget which show it is, on Tales to Terrify, we've got Gene Wolfe's, so Larry's got Gene Wolfe's acceptance speech of this award as well. It's narrated by Richie Smith, who was born in 1980, somewhere in the Midlands. <laughs> it's been pretty much all downhill from there on in. He currently lives in Old Trafford with his partner and a large aquatic salamander called Asbo. When not eking out a meagre living as a charlatan and knave, he can be found on Twitter shouting at strangers. It gives him great sense of inner peace. Rich, Richie is just a, a fantastic narrator. I kind of discovered him. Just put a little shout out on Twitter and Richie kind of popped up there and he's done some great stories for her. Or you will hear them soon as well. If you want to narrate, if anyone out there wants to narrate, you know what I mean? I've got two shows to kind of fill now and narrate as, please. Get on in. You could be coming, you know, you could come on to Starship Sova and narrate or on Tales to Terrify with Larry. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Truth is a Cave in the Black Mountains. By Neil Gaiman You ask me if I can forgive myself. I can forgive myself for many things. For where I left him. For what I did. But I will not forgive myself for the year that I hated my daughter, when I believed her to have run away, perhaps to the city. During that year, I forbade her name to be mentioned, and if her name entered my prayers when I prayed, it was to ask that she would one day learn the meaning of what she had done, of the dishonour she had brought to our family of the red that ringed her mother's eyes. I hate myself for that, and nothing will ease the hatred, not even what happened that final night on the side of the mountain. I had searched for nearly ten years, although the trail was cold. I would say that I found him by accident, but I do not believe in accidents. If you walk the path, eventually you must arrive at the cave. But that was later. First, there was the valley on the mainland the whitewashed house in the gentle meadow with the burn splashing through it, a house that sat like a square of white sky, against the green of the grass and the heather just beginning to purple. And there was a boy outside the house, picking wool from off a thorn bush. He did not see me approaching, and he did not look up until I said, I used to do that, gather the wool from the thorn bushes and twigs. My mother would wash it, and then she'd make me things with it, a ball and a doll. He turned. He looked shocked, as if I had appeared out of nowhere, and I had not. I had walked many a mile, and had many more miles to go. I said, I walk quietly. Is this a house of Callum McKinn's? 
The boy nodded, drew himself up to his full height, which was perhaps two fingers bigger than mine, and he said, I am Callum McKins. Is there another of that name, for the Callum McKins that I seek is a grown man? The boy said nothing, just knotted a thick clump of sheep's wool from the clutching fingers of the thorn bush. I said, Your father, perhaps? Would he be Callum McKins as well? The boy was peering at me. What are you? he asked. I am a small man, I told him. But I am a man, nonetheless, and I am here to see Callum McKins. Why? the boy hesitated. Then, and why are you so small? I said, because I have something to ask your father, man's business. And I saw a smile start at the tips of his lips. It's not a bad thing to be small, young Callum. There was a night when the Campbells came knocking on my door, a whole troop of them, twelve men with knives and sticks, and they demanded of my wife, Morag, that she produce me, as they were there to kill me, in revenge for some imagined slight. And she said, Young Johnny, run down to the far meadow, and tell your father to come back to the house, that I sent for him. And the Campbells watched as the boy ran out the door. They knew that I was a most dangerous person, but nobody had told them that I was a wee man, or if that had been told, it had not been believed. Did the boy call you? said the lad. It was no boy, I told him, but me myself it was, and they'd had me, and I still walked out the door and threw their fingers. The boy laughed. Then he said, Why were the Campbells after you? It was a disagreement about the ownership of cattle. They thought the cows were theirs. I maintained that the Campbells' ownership of them had ended the first night the cows had come with me over the hills. Wait here, said young Callum McKins. I sat by the burn and looked up at the house. It was a good-sized house. I would have taken it for the house of a doctor, or a man of law, not of a border reaver. There were pebbles on the ground, and I made a pile of them, and I tossed the pebbles, one by one, into the burn. I have a good eye, and I enjoyed rattling the pebbles over the meadow and into the water. I had thrown a hundred stones when the boy returned, accompanied by a tall, loping man. His hair was streaked with grey, his face was long and wolfish. There are no wolves in these hills, not any longer, and the bears have gone too. Good day to you, I said. He said nothing in return, only stared. I'm used to stares. I said, I'm seeking Callum McKins. If you are he, say so, and I will greet you. If you are not he, tell me now and I'll be on my way. What business would you have with Callum McKins? I wish to hire him as a guide. And where is it you would wish to be taken? I stared at him. That is hard to say, I told him, for there are some who say it does not exist. It is a certain cave on the misty isle. He said nothing. Then he said, Callum, go back to the house. But da, tell your mother I said she was to give you some tablet. You like that? Go on. Expressions crossed the boy's face. Puzzlement, hunger, happiness, and then he turned and ran back to the White House. Callum McKinn said, Who sent you here? I pointed to the burn as it splashed its way between us on its journey down the hill. What's that? I asked. Water, he replied. And they say there is a king across it, I told him. I did not know him then at all, and I never knew him well, but his eyes became guarded and his head cocked to one side. How do I know you are who you say you are? 
I have claimed nothing, I said. Just that there are those who have heard that there's a cave on the Misty Isle, and that you might know the way. He said, I will not tell you where the cave is. I am not here asking for directions. I seek a guide, and two travel more safely than one. He looked me up and down, and I waited for the joke about my size, but he did not make it, and for that I was grateful. He just said, When we reach the cave, I will not go inside. You must bring out the gold yourself. I said, It's all one to me. He said, You can only take what you carry. I will not touch it. But yes, I will take you. I said, You'll be paid well for your trouble. I reached into my jerkin, handed him the pouch I had there. This is for taking me, and another, twice the size, when we return. He poured the coins from the pouch into his huge hand, and he nodded. Silver, he said. Good. Then, I will say goodbye to my wife and son. Is there nothing you need to bring? He said, I was a reaver in my youth, and reavers travel light. I'll bring a rope for the mountains. He patted his dirk, which hung from his belt, and went back into the whitewashed house. I never saw his wife, not then, not at any other time. I do not know what colour her hair was. I threw another fifty stones into the burn as I waited, until he returned, with a coil of rope thrown over one shoulder, and then we walked together away from a house too grand for any reaver, and we headed west. The mountains between the rest of the world and the coast are gradual hills, visible from a distance as gentle purple hazy things, like clouds. They seem inviting. They are slow mountains, the kind you can walk up easily, like walking up a hill, for they are hills that take a full day and more to climb. We walked up the hill, and by the end of the first day we were cold. I saw snow on the peaks above us, although it was high summer. We said nothing to each other that first day. There was nothing to be said. We knew where we were going. We made a fire from dried sheep dung and a dead thorn bush. We boiled water and made our porridge, each of us throwing a handful of oats and a finger pinch of salt into the little pan I carried. His handful was huge, and my handful was small, like my hand, which made him smile and say, I hope you'll not be eating half the porridge. I said I would not, and indeed I did not, for my appetite is smaller than that of a full-grown man. But this is a good thing, I believe, for I can keep going in the wild on nuts and berries that would not keep a bigger person from starving. A path of sorts ran across the high hills, and we followed it, and encountered almost nobody. A tinker and his donkey, piled high with old pots, and a girl leading the donkey, who smiled at me when she thought me to be a child, and then scowled when she perceived me to be what I am and would have thrown a stone at me had the tinker not slapped her hand with the switch he had been using to encourage the donkey. And later, we overtook an old woman and a man she said was her grandson, on their way back across the hills. We ate with her, and she told us that she had attended the birth of her first great-grandchild, that it was a good birth. She said she would tell our fortunes from the lines in our palms, if we had coins to cross her palm. I gave the old biddy a clipped lowland groat, and she looked at the palm of my right hand. She said... I see death in your past and death in your future. Death waits in all our futures, I said. She paused, there in the highest of the highlands, where the summer winds have winter on their breath, where they howl and whip and slash the air like knives. She said, There was a woman in a tree. There will be a man in a tree. I said, Will this mean anything to me? One day, perhaps, she said. Beware of gold, 
Silver is your friend. And then she was done with me. To Callum McKinn, she said, Your palm has been burned. He said that was true. She said, Give me your other hand, your left hand. He did so. She gazed at it intently. Then, You return to where you began. You will be higher than most other men, and there is no grave waiting for you where you are going. He said, You tell me that I will not die. It is a left-handed fortune. I know what I have told you and no more. She knew more. I saw it in her face. That was the only thing of any importance that occurred to us on the second day. We slept in the open that night. The night was clear and cold, and the sky was hung with stars that seemed so bright and close I felt as if I could have reached out my arm and gathered them like berries. We lay side by side beneath the stars, and Callum McKinn said, Death awaits you, she said, but death does not wait for me. I think mine was the better fortune. Perhaps. Ah, he said, it's all a nonsense, old woman talk. It's not truth. I woke in the dawn mist to see a stag watching us curiously. The third day we crested those mountains, and we began to walk downhill. My companion said, When I was a boy, my father's dirk fell into the cooking fire. I pulled it out, but the metal hilt was as hot as the flames. I did not expect this, but I would not let the dirk go. I carried it away from the fire and plunged the sword into the water. It made steam, I remember that. My palm was burned and my hand curled, as if it was meant to carry a sword until the end of time. I said, You with your hand, me only a little man. It's fine heroes we are who seek our fortunes on the misty isle. He barked a laugh, shortened without humour. Fine heroes, was all he said. The rain began to fall then, and did not stop falling. That night we passed a small croft house. There was a trickle of smoke from its chimney, and we called out for the owner, but there was no response. I pushed open the door and called again. The place was dark, but I could smell tallow, as if a candle had been burning and had been recently snuffed. No one at home, said Callum. But I shook my head and walked forward, then leaned down into the darkness beneath the bed. Would you care to come out? I asked. For we are travellers, seeking warmth and shelter and hospitality. We would share with you our oats and our salt and our whisky, and we will not harm you. At first the woman hidden beneath the bed said nothing, and then she said, My husband is away in the hills, and he has told me to hide myself away if the strangers come, for fear of what they might do to me. I said, I am but a little man, good lady, no bigger than a child. You could send me flying with a blow. My companion is a full-sized man, but I do swear that he shall do nothing to you, save partake of your hospitality, and we would dry ourselves. Please, do come out. All covered with dust and spiderwebs she was when she emerged, but even with her face all begrimed, she was beautiful, and even with her hair all webbed and greyed with dust, it was still long and thick and golden-red. For a heartbeat she put me in the mind of my daughter, but that my daughter would look a man in the eye, while this one only glanced at the ground fearfully, like something expecting to be beaten. I gave her some of our oats, and Callum produced strips of dried meat from his pocket, and she went out to the field and returned with a pair of scrawny turnips, and she prepared food for the three of us. I ate my fill. She had no appetite. I believe that Callum was still hungry when his meal was done. He poured whiskey for the three of us, she took but a little, and that with water. The rain rattled on the roof of the house, and dripped in the corner, and, unwelcoming though it was, I was glad that I was inside. It was then that a man came through the door. He said nothing, only stared at us, untrusting, 
angry. He pulled off his cape of sheepskin and his hat, and he dropped them on the earth floor. They dripped and puddled. The silence was oppressive. Callum McKinn said, Your wife gave us hospitality when we found her. Hard enough she was in the finding. We asked for hospitality, I said, as we ask it of you. The man said nothing, only grunted. In the Highlands, people spend words as if they were golden coins. But the custom is strong there. Strangers who ask for hospitality must be granted it, though you have a blood feud against them and their clan or kin. The woman, little more than the girl she was, while her husband's beard was grey and white, so I wondered if she was his daughter for a moment. But no, there was but one bed, scarcely big enough for two. The woman went outside into the sheep pen that adjoined the house and returned with oat cakes and a dried ham she must have hidden there, which she sliced thin and placed on a wooden trencher before the man. Callum poured the man whiskey and said, We seek the misty isle. Do you know if it's there? The man looked at us. The winds are bitter in the highlands. They would whip the words from a man's lips. He pursed his mouth. Then he said, I saw it from the peak this morning. It's there. I cannot say if it'll be there tomorrow. We slept on the hard earth floor of that cottage. The fire went out and there was no warmth from the hearth. The man and his woman slept in their bed behind the curtain. He had his way with her, beneath the sheepskin that covered the bed, and before he did that, he beat her for feeding us and for letting us in. I heard them, and I could not stop hearing them, and sleep was hard in the finding that night. I have slept in the homes of the poor, I have slept in palaces, and I have slept beneath the stars, and would have told you before that night that all these places were one to me. But I awoke before the first light, convinced that we had to be gone from that place, but not knowing why and I woke Callum up by putting a finger to his lips, and silently we left that croft on the mountainside without saying our farewells, and I have never been more pleased to be gone from anywhere. We were a mile from that place when I said, The island! You asked if it would be there. Surely an island is either there, or it is not there. Callum hesitated. He seemed to be weighing his words, and then he said, The misty isle is not as other places, and the mist that surrounds it is not like other mists. We walked down a path worn by hundreds of years of sheep and deer and few enough men. He said, They also call it the winged isle. Some say it's because the island, if seen above, would look like butterfly wings. And I do not know the truth of it. Then, And what is truth? said jesting Pilate. It is harder coming down than it is going up. I thought about it. Sometimes I think that truth is a place. In my mind it's like a city. There can be a hundred roads, a thousand paths, that will all take you, eventually, to the same place. It does not matter where you come from. If you walk towards the truth, you will reach it, whatever path you take. Callum McKins looked down at me and said nothing. Then, You are wrong. The truth is a cave, in the Black Mountains. There is one way there, and one only, and that way is treacherous and hard, and if you choose the wrong path you will die alone on the mountainside. We crested the ridge, and we looked down to the coast. I could see the villages below, beside the water, and I could see high black mountains before me, on the other side of the sea, coming out of the mist. Callum said, There's your cave, and those mountains. The bones of the earth, I thought, seeing them. And then I became uncomfortable, thinking of bones, and to distract myself, I said, And how many times is it that you've been there? Only once, he hesitated. I searched for it all my sixteenth year, for I had heard the legends, and I believed if I sought I should find. I was seventeen when I reached it, 
and came back with all the gold coins I could carry. And we are not frightened of the curse. When I was young, I was afraid of nothing. What did you do with your gold? A portion I buried, and I alone know where. The rest I used as a bride price for the woman I loved, and I built a fine house with it. He stopped, as if he had already said too much. There was no ferryman at the jetty, only a small boat on the shore, hardly big enough for three full-size men, tied to a tree trunk, all twisted and half-dead, and a bell beside it. I sounded the bell, and soon enough a fat man came down to the shore. He said to Callum, "'It'll cost you a shilling for the ferry, and for your boy, three pennies.' I stood tall. I'm not as big as other men are, but I have as much pride as any of them. "'I am also a man,' I said. "'I'll pay you a shilling.' The ferryman looked me up and down, then he scratched his beard. "'I beg your pardon. My eyes are not what they once were. I shall take you to the island.' I handed him a shilling. He weighed it in his hand. "'That's ninepence you didn't cheat me out of. Nine pennies are a lot of money in this dark age.' The water was the colour of slate, although the sky was blue, and white caps chased one another across the water's surface. He untied the boat and hauled it, rattling, down the shingle to the water. He waded out into the cold channel and clambered inside. The splash of oars on seawater, and the boat was propelled forwards in easy movements. I sat closest to the ferryman. I said, Ninepence, it is good wages, but I've heard of a cave in the mountains of the Misty Isle, filled with gold coins, the treasure of the ancients. He shook his head dismissively. Callum was staring at me, lips pressed together so hard they were white. I ignored him and asked the man again. A cave filled with golden coins, a gift from the Norsemen, or the Southerners, or from those who they say were here long before any of us, those who fled into the west as the people came. Heard of it, said the ferryman. Heard also of the curse of it. I reckon that the one can take care of the other. He spat into the sea. Then he said, You're an honest man, dwarf. I see it in your face. Do not seek this cave. No good can come of it. I am sure you're right, I told him without guile. I'm certain I am, he said, for not every day it is that I take a reaver and a little dwarfy man to the Misty Isle. Then he said, In this part of the world it is not considered lucky to talk about those who went to the west. We rowed the rest of the boat journey in silence, though the sea became choppier and the waves splashed into the side of the boat, such that I held on with both hands for fear of being swept away. And after what seemed like half a lifetime, the boat was tied to a long jetty of black stones. We walked the jetty, as the waves crashed around us, the salt spray kissing our faces. There was a humpbacked man on the landing selling oat cakes and plums dried until they were almost stones. I gave him a penny and filled my jerkin pockets with them. We walked on into the misty aisle. I am old now, or at least I am no longer young, and everything I see reminds me of something else I have seen, such that I see nothing for the first time. A bonny girl, her hair fiery red, reminds me only of a hundred other such lasses, and their mothers, and what they were as they grew, and what they looked like when they died. It is the curse of age that all things are reflections of other things. I say that, for my time on the Misty Isle, that is also called by the wise the Winged Isle, reminds me of nothing but itself. It is a day from the jetty until you reach the Black Mountains. Callum McKins looked at me, half his size or less, then he set off at a loping stride, as if challenging me to keep up. His legs propelled him across the ground, which was wet, and all ferns and heather. Above us low clouds were scudding, grey and white and black, hiding each other and revealing and hiding again. I let him get ahead of me, 
let him press on into the rain until he was swallowed by the wet grey haze. Then, and only then, I ran. This is one of the secret things of me, the things I have not revealed to any person, save to Morag, my wife, and Johnny and James, my sons, and Flora, my daughter. May the shadows rest her poor soul. I can run, and I can run well, and if need to, I can run faster and longer, and more sure-footedly than any full-sized man. And it was like this that I ran then, through the mist and the rain, taking to the high ground and the black rock ridges, yet keeping below the skyline. He was ahead of me, but I spied him soon, and I ran on, and I ran past him, on the high ground, with the brow of the hill between us. Below us was a stream. I can run for days without stopping. That is the first of my secrets. But there is one secret I have revealed to no man. We discussed already where we would camp that first night on the Misty Isle, and Callum had told me that we would spend the night between the rock that is called Man and Dog, for it is said that it looks like an old man with his dog by his side, and I reached it late in the afternoon. There was a shelter beneath the rock, which was protected and dry, and some of those who had been there before us had left firewood behind, sticks and twigs and branches. I made a fire and dried myself in front of it, and took the chill from my bones. The wood smoke blew out across the heather. It was dark when Callum loped into the shelter and looked at me as if he had not expected to see me that side of midnight. I said, What took you so long, Callum McKins? He said nothing, only stared at me. I said, There is trout, boiled in mountain water, and a fire to warm your bones. He nodded. We ate the trout, drank whiskey to warm ourselves. There was a mound of heather and of ferns, dried and brown, piled high in the rear of the shelter, and we slept upon that wrapped tight in our damp cloaks. I awoke in the night. There was cold steel against my throat, the flat of the blade, not the edge. I said, And why would you ever kill me in the night, Callum McKins? For our way is long, and our journey is not over yet. He said, I do not trust you, dwarf. It is not me that you must trust, I told him, but those that I serve. And if you left with me but return without me, there are those who will know the name of Callum McKins and cause it to be spoken in the shadows. A cold blade remained at my throat. He said, How did you get ahead of me? And here was I, repaying ill with good, for I made you food and a fire. I am a hard man to lose, Callum McKins, and it ill becomes a guide to do as you did today. Now take your dirk from my throat and let me sleep. He said nothing, but after a few moments the blade was removed. I forced myself neither to sigh nor to breathe, hoping he could not hear my heart pounding in my chest, and I slept no more that night. For breakfast I made porridge, and threw in some dried plums to soften them. The mountains were black and grey against the white of the sky. We saw eagles, huge and ragged of wings, circling above us. Callum set a sober pace, and I walked beside him, taking two steps for every one of his. "'How long?' I asked him. "'A day, perhaps two. It depends upon the weather. If the clouds come down, then two days, or even three. The clouds came down at noon.' and the world was blanketed by a mist that was worse than the rain. Droplets of water hung in the air, soaked our clothes and our skin. The rocks we walked upon became treacherous, and Callum and I slowed our ascent, and stepped carefully. We were walking up the mountain, not climbing, up goat paths and craggy sharp ways. The rocks were black and slippery. We walked and climbed and clambered and clung. We slipped and slid and stumbled and staggered, yet even in the mist Callum knew where he was going, and I followed him. He paused at a waterfall that splashed across our path, thick as a trunk of an oak. 
he took the thin rope from his shoulders, wrapped it about a rock. This waterfall's not here before, he told me. I'll go first. He tied the other end of the rope about his waist and edged out along the path into the waterfall, pressing his body against the wet rock face, edging slowly, intently through the sheet of water. I was scared for him, scared for both of us, holding my breath as he passed through, only breathing when he was on the other side of the waterfall. He tested the rope, pulled on it, motioned me to follow him, when a stone gave way beneath his foot, and he slipped on the wet rock and fell into the abyss. The rope held, and the rock beside me held. Callum McKins dangled from the end of the rope. He looked up at me, and I sighed, anchored myself by a slab of crag, and wound and pulled him up and up. I hauled him back onto the path, dripping and cursing. He said, "'You're stronger than you look!' and I cursed myself for a fool. He must have seen it on my face, for after he shook himself, like a dog, sending droplets flying, he said, My boy Callum told me the tale you told him about the Campbells coming for you, and you being sent into the fields by your wife, with them thinking she was your ma, and you a boy. It was just a tale, I said, something to pass the time. Indeed, he said, for I heard tell of a raiding party of Campbells sent out a few years ago, seeking revenge on someone who had taken their cattle. They went, and they never came back. If a small fellow like you can kill a dozen Campbells, well, you must be strong, and you must be fast. I must be stupid, I thought ruefully, telling that child that tale. I had picked them off, one by one, like rabbits, as they came out to piss, or see what had happened to their friends. I had killed seven of them before my wife killed her first. We buried them in the glen, built a small cairn of stacking stones above them, to weigh them down so their ghosts would not walk, and we were sad that the Campbells had come so far to kill me, and that we had been forced to kill them in return. I take no joy in killing, no man should, and no woman. Sometimes death is necessary, but it is always an evil thing. That is something I am in no doubt of, even after the events I speak of here. I took the rope from Callum McKins, and I clambered up and up, over the rocks, to where the waterfall came out of the side of the hill, and it was narrow enough for me to cross. It was slippery there, but I made it over without incident, tied the rope in place, came down, threw the end of it to my companion, walked him across. He did not thank me, neither for rescuing him, nor for getting us across, and I did not expect thanks. I also did not expect what he actually said, though, which was, You are not a whole man, and you are ugly. Your wife, is she also small and ugly like yourself? I decided to take no offence, whether offence had been intended or no. I simply said, She is not. She is a tall woman, almost as tall as you. And when she was young, when we were both younger, she was reckoned by some to be the most beautiful girl in the lowlands. The bards wrote songs praising her green eyes and her long red golden hair. I thought I saw him flinch at this, but it is possible that I imagined it, or more likely wished to imagine I had seen it. How did you win her, then? I spoke the truth. I wanted her, and I get what I want. I did not give up. She said I was wise, and I was kind, and I would always provide for her. And I have. The clouds began to lower once more, and the world blurred at the edges, became softer. She said I would be a good father, and I have done my best to raise my children, who are also, if you're wondering, normal-sized. I beat sense into young Callum, said older Callum. He is not a bad child. You can only do that as long as they are there with you, I said, and then I stopped talking and I remembered that long year, and I also remembered Flora when she was small, sitting on the floor with jam on her face, looking up at me as if I were the wisest man in the world.
Ran away, eh? I ran away when I was a lad. I was twelve. I went as far as the court of the king over the water, the father of the current king. That's not something you hear spoken aloud. I'm not afraid, he said. Not here. Who's to hear us? Eagles? I saw him. He was a fat man who spoke the language of the foreigners well, and our own tongue only with difficulty. But he was still our king, he paused. And if he is to come to us again, he will need gold for vessels and weapons and to feed the troops that he raises. I said, So I believe. That's why we go in search of the cave. He said, This is bad gold. It does not come free. It has its cost. Everything has its cost. I was remembering every landmark. Climb at the sheep skull, cross the first three streams, then walk across the fourth until the five heaped stones, and find where the rock looks like a seagull, and walk on between two sharply jutting walls of black rock, and let the slope bring you with it. I could remember it, I knew, well enough to find my way down again, but the mists confused me, and I could not be certain. We reached a small lock, high in the mountains, and drank fresh water, caught huge white creatures that were not shrimps or lobsters or crayfish, and ate them raw like sausages, for we could not find any dry wood to make our fire that high. We slept on a wide ledge beside the icy water and woke into clouds before sunrise, when the world was grey and blue. "'You were sobbing in your sleep,' said Callum. "'I had a dream,' I told him. "'I do not have bad dreams,' Callum said. "'It was a good dream,' I said. "'It was true.' I had dreamed that Flora still lived. She was grumbling about the village boys and telling me of her time in the hills with the cattle and of things of no consequence, smiling her great smile and tossing her hair the while, red-golden like her mother's, although her mother's hair is now streaked with white. "'Good dreams should not make a man cry out like that,' said Callum. A pause, then. "'I have no dreams. Not good, not bad.' "'No? Not since I was a young man.' We rose. A thought struck me. Did you stop dreaming after you came to... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The cave. He said nothing. We walked along the mountainside into the mist and the sun came up. 
The mist seemed to thicken and fill with light in the sunshine, but did not fade away, and I realised that it must be a cloud. The world glowed, and then it seemed to me that I was staring at a man of my size, a small, humpty man, his face a shadow, standing in the air in front of me like a ghost or an angel, and it moved as I moved. It was haloed by the light and shimmered, and I could not have told you how near it was or how far away. I have seen miracles, and I have seen evil things, but I have never seen anything like that. Is it magic? I asked, although I smelled no magic in the air. Callum said, It's nothing, a property of the light, a shadow, a reflection, no more. I see a man beside me as well. He moves as I move. I glanced back, but saw nobody beside him. And then the little glowing man in the air faded, and the cloud, and it was day, and we were alone. We climbed all that morning, ascending. Callum's ankle had twisted the day before, when he slipped at the waterfall. Now it swelled in front of me, swelled and went red, but his pace did not ever slow, and if he was in discomfort or in pain, it did not show upon his face. I said, how long, as dusk began to blur the edges of the world. An hour, less perhaps. We will reach the cave, and then we will sleep for the night. In the morning, you will go inside. You can bring out as much gold as you can carry, and we will make our way back off the island. I looked at him then. Grey streaked hair, grey eyes, so huge and wolfish a man, and I said, You would sleep outside the cave? I would. There are no monsters in the cave. Nothing that will come out and take you in the night. Nothing that will eat us. But you should not go in until daylight. And then we rounded a rockfall, all black rocks and grey, half blocking our path, and we saw the cave mouth. I said, Is that all? You expected marble pillars, or a giant's cave from a gossip's fireside tales? Perhaps. It looks like nothing. A hole in the rock face. A shadow. And there are no guards. No guards. Only the place and what it is. A cave filled with treasure, and you are the only one who can find it. Callum laughed then, like a fox's bark. The islanders know how to find it, but they are too wise to come here, to take its gold. They say that the cave makes you evil, that each time you visit it, each time you enter to take gold, it eats the good in your soul, so they do not enter. And is that true? Does it make you evil? No. The cave feeds on something else. Not good and evil. Not really. You can take your gold, but afterwards things are... He paused. Things are flat. There's less beauty in a rainbow, less meaning in a sermon, less joy in a kiss. He looked at the cave mouth, and I thought I saw fear in his eyes. Less. I said, There are many for whom the lure of gold outweighs the beauty of a rainbow. Me, when young, for one. You, now, for another. So, we go in at dawn? You will go in. I will wait for you out here. Do not be afraid. No monster guards the cave. No spells to make the gold vanish if you do not know some cantrip or rhyme. We made our camp then, or rather we sat in the darkness against the cold rock wall. There would be no sleep there. I said, You took the gold from here as I will do tomorrow. You bought a house with it, a bride, a good name. His voice came from the darkness. Aye, and they meant nothing to me once I had them, or less than nothing. And if your gold pays for the king over the water to come back to us and rule us and bring about a land of joy and prosperity and warmth, it will still mean nothing to you. It will be something you heard of that happened to a man in a tale. I have lived my life to bring the king back, I told him. He said, You will take the gold back to him. Your king will want more gold, because kings want more. It's what they do. Each time you come back, it will mean less. The rainbow means nothing. Killing a man means nothing. 
Silence then, in the darkness. I heard no birds, only the wind that called and gusted about the peak like a mother seeking her babe. I said, We have both killed men. Have you ever killed a woman, Callum McKins? I have not. I have killed no woman, no girls. I ran my hands over my dirk in the darkness, seeking the wood and silver of the hilt, the steel of the blade. It was there in my hands. I had not intended ever to tell him, only to strike when we were out of the mountains. Strike once, strike deep, but now I felt the words being pulled from me, would I or never so. They say there was a girl, I told him, and a thorn bush. Silence. The whistling of the wind. Who told you? he asked. Then, never mind. I should not kill a woman. No man of honour would kill a woman. If I said a word, I knew he would be silent on the subject and never talk about it again. So I said nothing, only waited. Callum McKins began to speak, choosing his words with care, talking as if remembering a tale he had heard as a child and almost forgotten. They told me the kind of the lowlands were fat and bonny, and that a man could gain honour and glory by adventuring off to the south and returning with the fine red cattle. So I went south, and never a cow was good enough, until on a hillside in the lowlands I saw the finest, reddest, fattest cows that ever a man has seen. So I began to lead them away, back the way I had come. She came after me with a stick. The cattle were her father's, she said, and I was a rogue and a knave and all manner of rough things. But she was beautiful, even when angry. And had I not already a young wife, I might have dealt more kindly with her. Instead, I pulled a knife and touched it to her throat and bade her to stop speaking. And she did stop. I would not kill her. I would not kill a woman, and that's the truth. So I tied her by her hair to a thorn tree, and I took her knife from her waistband to slow her as she tried to free herself and push the blade of it deep into the sod. I tied her to the thorn tree by her long hair, and I thought no more of it as I made off with her cattle. It was another year before I was back that way. I was not after cows that day, but I walked up the side of that bank. It was a lonely spot, and if you had not been looking, you would not have seen it. Perhaps nobody searched for her. I heard they searched, I told him. Although some believed her taken by reavers, and others believed her run away with a tinker or gone to the city, but still, they searched. Aye, I saw what I did see. Perhaps you'd have to have stood where I was standing to see what I did see. It was an evil thing I did, perhaps. Perhaps. He said, I have taken gold from the cave of the mists. I cannot tell any longer if there is good or there is evil. I sent a message by a child at an inn, telling them where she was and where they could find her. I closed my eyes, but the world became no darker. There is evil, I told him. I saw it in my mind's eye, her skeleton picked clean of clothes, picked clean of flesh, as naked and white as anyone would ever be, hanging like a child's puppet against a thorn bush, tied to a branch above it by its red-golden hair. At dawn, Callum McKinn said, as if we had been talking of provisions or the weather, you will leave your dirt behind, for such is the custom, and you will enter the cave and bring out as much gold as you can carry, and you will bring it back with you to the mainland. There's not a soul in these parts, knowing what you carry or where it's from, who would take it from you. Then send it to the king over the water, and he will pay his men with it, and feed them, and buy them weapons. One day he will return. Tell me on that day that there is evil, little man. When the sun was up, I entered the cave. It was damp in there. I could hear water running down one wall, and felt a wind on my face, which was strange, 
because Musby was no wind inside the mountain. In my mind, the cave would be filled with gold. Bars of gold would be stacked like firewood, and bags of golden coins would sit between them. There would be golden chains and golden rings and golden plates, heaped high like the china plates in a rich man's house. I had imagined riches, but there was nothing like that here. Only shadows. Only rock. Something was here, though. Something that waited. I have secrets. There is a secret that lies beneath my other secrets, and not even my children know it, although I believe my wife suspects. And it is this. My mother was a mortal woman, the daughter of a miller, but my father came to her from out of the west, and to the west he returned when he had had his sport with her. I cannot be sentimental about my parentage. I am sure he does not think of her, and doubt that he ever knew of me. But he left me a body that is small and fast and strong, and perhaps I take after him in other ways. I do not know. I am ugly, and my father was beautiful, or so my mother told me once, but I think she may have been deceived. I wondered what I would have seen in that cave if my father had been an innkeeper from the lowlands. You will be seeing cold, said a whisper that was not a whisper, from deep in the heart of the mountain. It was a lonely voice, and distracted and bored. I would see gold, I said aloud. Would it be real, or would it be an illusion? The whisper was amused. You are thinking like a mortal man, making things always to be one thing or another. It is gold they would see and touch, gold they would carry back with them, feeling the weight of it the while, gold they would trade with other mortals for what they needed. What does it matter if it is there or no, if they can see it, touch it, steal it, murder from it, gold they need, gold I give them. And what do you take for the gold you give them? Little enough for my needs are few, and I am old, too old to follow my sisters into the west. I taste their pleasure and their joy. I feed a little, feed on what they do not need and do not value. A taste of heart, a lick and a nibble of their fine consciences, a sliver of soul, and in return a fragment of me leaves this cave with them and gazes out of the world through their eyes, sees what they see until their lives are done, and I take back what is mine. Will you show yourself to me? I could see in the darkness, better than any man born of man and woman could see. I saw something move in the shadows, and the shadows congealed and shifted, revealing formless things at the edge of my perception, where it meets imagination. Troubled, I said the thing that it is proper to say at such times as this, Appear before me in form that neither harms nor is offensive to me. Is that what you wish? The drip of distant water. Yes, I said. From out of the shadows it came, and it stared down at me with empty sockets, smiled at me with wind-weathered ivory teeth. It was all bone save for its hair, and its hair was red and gold and wrapped around the branch of a thorn bush. That offends my eyes. I took it from your mind, said a whisper that surrounded the skeleton. Its jawbone did not move. I chose something you loved. This was your daughter, Flora, as she was the last time you saw her. I closed my eyes, but the figure remained. It said, The reaver waits for you at the mouth of the cave. He waits for you to come out, weaponless and weighed down with gold. He will kill you and take the gold from your dead hands. But I'll not be coming out with gold, will I? I thought of Callum McKins, the wolf grey in his hair, the grey of his eyes, the line of his dirk, 
He was bigger than I am, but all men are bigger than I am. Perhaps I was stronger and faster, but he was also fast, and he was strong. He killed my daughter, I thought, then wondered if the thought was mine, or if it had crept out of the shadows into my head. Out loud, I said, Is there another way out of this cave? You leave the way you entered through the mouth of my home. I stood there and did not move, but in my mind I was like an animal in a trap, questing and darting from idea to idea, finding no purchase and no solace and no solution. I said, I am weaponless. He told me that I could not enter this place with a weapon, that it was not the custom. It is the custom now to bring no weapon into my place. It was not always the custom. Follow me, said the skeleton of my daughter. I followed her, for I could see her, even when it was so dark that I could see nothing else. In the shadows it said, It is beneath your hand. I crouched and felt it. The haft felt like bone, perhaps an antler. I touched the blade cautiously in the darkness, discovered that I was holding something that felt more like an orb than a knife. It was thin, sharp at the tip. It would be better than nothing. Is there a price? There is always a price. Then I will pay it. And I ask one other thing. You say that you can see the world through his eyes. There were no eyes in that hollow skull, but it nodded. Then tell me when he sleeps. It said nothing. It melded into the darkness, and I felt alone in that place. Time passed. I followed the sound of the dripping water, found a rock pool and drank. I soaked the last of the oats and ate them, chewing them until they dissolved in my mouth. I slept and woke and slept again, and dreamed of my wife, Morag, waiting for me as the seasons changed, waiting for me just as we had waited for our daughter, waiting for me forever. Something, a finger I thought, touched my hand. It was not bony and hard. It was soft and human-like, but too cold. He sleeps. I left the cave in the blue light before dawn. He slept across the cave, cat-like, I knew, such that the slightest touch would have woken him. I held my weapon in front of me, a bone handle and a needle-like blade of blackened silver, and I reached out and took what I was after without waking him. Then I stepped closer, and his hand grasped for my ankle and his eyes opened. Where is the gold? asked Callum McKins. I have none. The wind blew cold on the mountainside. I danced back out of his reach when he had grabbed at me. He stayed on the ground, pushed himself up onto one elbow. Then he said, Where is my dirk? I took it, I told him, while you slept. He looked at me, sleepily. And why ever would you do that? If I was going to kill you, I'd have done it on the way here. I could have killed you a dozen times. But I did not have gold then, did I? He said nothing. I said, If you think you could have got me to bring the gold from the cave, and that not bringing it out yourself would have saved your miserable soul, then you're a fool. He no longer looked sleepy. A fool, am I? He was ready to fight. It is good to make people who are ready to fight angry. I said, Not a fool, no, for I have met fools and idiots, and they are happy in their idiocy, even with straw in their hair. You are too wise for foolishness. You seek only misery, and you bring misery with you, and you call down misery on all you touch. He rose then, holding a rock in his hand like an axe, and he came at me. I am small, and he could not strike me as he would have struck a man of his own size. He leaned over to strike. It was a mistake. I held the bone half tightly, and stabbed upwards, striking fast with the point of the awl, like a snake, 
I knew the place I was aiming for, and I knew what it would do. He dropped his rock, clutched at his right shoulder. My arm, he said. I cannot feel my arm. He swore then, fouling the air with curses and threats. The dawn light on the mountain top made everything so beautiful and blue. In that light, even the blood that had begun to soak his garment was purple. He took a step back, so he was between me and the cave. I felt exposed to the rising sun at my back. Why do you not have gold? he asked me. His arm hung limply at his side. There was no gold there for such as I, I said. He threw himself forwards then, ran at me and kicked at me. My all-blade went flying from my hand. I threw my arms around his leg, and I held on to him as together we hurtled off the mountainside. His head was above me, and I saw triumph in it, and then I saw sky, and then the valley floor was above me and I was rising to meet it, and then it was below me and I was falling to my death. A jar and a bump, and now we were turning over and over on the side of the mountain, the world a dizzying whirligig of rock and pain and sky, and I knew I was a dead man, but still I clung to the leg of Callum McKins. I saw a golden eagle in flight, but below me or above me I could no longer say. It was there, in the dawn sky, in the shattered fragments of time and perception, there in the pain. I was not afraid. There was no time and no space to be afraid in. No space in my mind and no space in my heart. I was falling through the sky, holding tightly to the leg of a man who was trying to kill me. We were crashing into rocks, scraping and bruising, and then... We stopped. Stopped with force enough that I felt myself jarred, and I was almost thrown off Callum McKinn's into my death beneath. The side of the mountain had crumbled there, long ago, sheared off, leaving a sheet of blank rock, as smooth and as featureless as glass. But that was below us. Where we were, there was a ledge, and on the ledge there was a miracle, stunted and twisted, high above the tree line, where no trees have any right to grow, was a twisted hawthorn tree, not much larger than a bush, although it was old. Its roots grew into the side of the mountain, and it was this hawthorn that had caught us in its grey arms. I let go of the leg, clambered off Callum McKinn's body, and onto the side of the mountain. I stood on the narrow ledge and looked down at the sheer drop. There was no way down from here. No way down at all. I looked up. It might be possible, I thought, climbing slowly, with fortune on my side, to make it up that mountain. If it did not rain, if the wind was not too hungry, and what choice did I have? The only alternative was death. A voice. So, will you leave me here to die, dwarf? I said nothing. I had nothing to say. His eyes were open. He said, I cannot move my right arm since you stabbed it. I think I broke a leg in the fall. I cannot climb with you. I said, I may succeed or I may fail. You'll make it. I've seen you climb. After you rescued me crossing that waterfall, you went up those rocks like a squirrel going up a tree. I did not have his confidence in my climbing abilities. He said, Swear to me by all you hold holy. Swear by your king, who waits over the sea as he has since we drove his subjects from this land. Swear by the things you creatures hold dear. Swear by shadows and eagle feathers and silence. Swear that you will come back for me. You know what I am, I said. I know nothing, he said, only that I want to live. I thought. I swear by these things, I told him. By shadows, and by eagle feathers, and by silence. I swear by green hills and standing stones. I will come back. I would have killed you, said the man in the hawthorn bush. And he said it with humour, as if it was the biggest joke that ever one man had told another. I had planned to kill you and take the gold back as my own. 
I know. His hair framed his face like a wolf-grey halo. There was red blood on his cheek where he had scraped it in the fall. You could come back with ropes, he said. My rope is still up there by the cave mouth, but you need more than that. Yes, I said. I will come back with ropes. I looked up at the rock above us, examined it as best I could. Sometimes good eyes means the difference between life and death if you are a climber. I saw where I would need to be as I went, the shape of my journey up the face of the mountain. I thought I could see the ledge outside the cave from which we had fallen as we fought. I would head for there, yes. I blew on my hands to dry the sweat before I began to climb. I will come back for you, I said. With ropes, I have sworn. When? he asked, and he closed his eyes. In a year, I told him. I will come here in a year. I began to climb. The man's cries followed me as I stepped and crawled and squeezed and hauled myself up the side of that mountain, mingling with the cries of the great raptors, and they followed me back from the misty isle, with nothing to show for my pains and my time, and I will hear him screaming at the edge of my mind as I fall asleep or in the moments before I wake until I die. It did not rain, and the wind gusted and plucked at me, but did not throw me down. I climbed, and I climbed in safety. When I reached the ledge, the cave entrance seemed like a darker shadow in the noonday sun. I turned from it, turned my back on the mountain, and from the shadows that were already gathering in the cracks and the crevices and deep inside my skull, and I began my slow journey away from the misty isle. There were a hundred roads and a thousand paths that would take me back to my home in the lowlands, where my wife would be waiting. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Neil Gaiman's. This actual, that actual story there you just listened to won the Locust Pole Award. Best novelette came first. So big thank you to Mr. Gaiman for everyone out there. And Richie, thank you so much for that fine narration. Next and finally, to round off this week's show, we have Theatre of the Mind with Paul Finch. Paul, while there's a box of frogs. For the third Theatre of the Mind, I'm going to be looking at Magic Island. And I think you'll either love it or hate it, but, but more about Jerry Hall later. Magic Island is a science fantasy radio serial aimed at an audience of children and was originally broadcast in 1935. The series had 130 15-minute episodes and all episodes have survived. Patricia Gregory's daughter Joan has been missing for 14 years. The Gregory yacht was shipwrecked near the 30th parallel south. Lashed to a lifeboat, the one-year-old Joan was resumed lost but by all but her mother. In the dark, mysterious South Pacific Ocean, a magnificent yacht is carrying its passengers and crew on a strange cruise. Jerry Hall has joined Mrs. Gregory and Captain Bradford on the Gregory yacht to aid in the search for Mrs. Gregory's little girl. Lost at sea when a baby, the girl has been reported living on a mysterious island. The yacht was anchored off a bank of what appeared to be fog but was not natural fog. With the aid of apparatus designed by Captain Bradford, Jerry and his friends have looked over the fog and down onto the island. The Magic Island is man-made and called Euclidia. It's located in the middle of the South Pacific at 29 degrees south, 124 degrees 30 minutes west. Yes, they're, they're that accurate. Euclidia's Magic Island was constructed of an artificial stone-like material over a natural coral bed. 
The entire island is capable of submerging eight fathoms below the surface to allow large ships to pass overhead, leaving Euclidea's magic island undetected. The magic island can remain submerged for as long as a month. Euclidea was the home to a colony of scientists led by the mad scientist G47, who was bent on world domination. Euclidea was also home to several expatriates from around the world who had been promised special favours, territories and positions once the Euclideans subjected the rest of the world. The entire population of Euclidea was estimated 250 Euclidians and others. Euclidea's magic island consisted of 10 levels below the surface of the island. The island was an oval, approximately 800 feet by 600 feet. 12 200-foot pillars extended out from the island. During safe periods, e.g. when there was no projected sea lane traffic, the artificial fog ring was lowered and some artificially accelerated palm trees were planted in depressions across the surface of the island. The seeds grew into full-height palm trees in under five minutes, providing shade from the blazing sun during the safe periods. Those same palm trees could be reduced to ash in a matter of seconds in the event of an unanticipated passing ship or plane passing by. The magnetically charged artificial, artificial fog ring was immediately raised and Euclidea was again shielded from view. The entire man-made island could move along the sea floor on a series of massive caterpillar tracks. Euclidea's real secrets lay on the ocean floor below its artificial island. 400 feet below the magic island was a modern city of Atlantis, the real Euclidea. Its huge complex on the ocean floor housed a vast array of undersea facilities capable of generating their own power, fuel, natural food, air, sunlight, livestock and temperature. Below the ocean floor complex lay 13 enormous chambers, 12 of which were one mile in diameter and 800 feet tall, and one of which was two miles in diameter and one mile tall. Each enormous cavern or chamber served a special purpose, such as horticulture, animal husbandry, flight testing, etc. There is a strong educational element woven discreetly into the programmes. During the series, the listeners learn how to convert fathoms to feet, convert latitude and longitude degrees to miles, the respective power levels and ranges of mobile and stationary radio stations, the characteristics of magnetic light, sound, infrared, ultraviolet and radio waves, about ancient and modern alchemy, the range and speed of homing pigeons, <laughs> hydroplane technology, the altitude range of the stratosphere, the history of Greek mathematics, the theory behind radio triangulation, the emerging theory of over-the-horizon OTH radar and bouncing radio waves off the stratosphere, submarine technology speed and range, early television technology, nautical navigation, the emerging theory of electromagnetic pulse technology and weapons, hydrogen as a power source, the theory of binary chemical weapons, and thin copper technology. The six main characters in Magic Island are Jerry Hall, the boy who overheard a radio message from Euclidia regarding Joan, and accompanies the Gregory party to the Magic Island. Giggling Goldfish, 
This Jerry Hall is an irritating little bozo. Golly Whiskers, his speech is littered with... Oh, golly Whiskers. Boy, that's slick. Will you take me with you? Will we do what? Take me along, will you? And I know a lot about boats and aeroplanes and radios and all that sort of stuff. And I'd work hard on the yacht and... Oh, golly Whiskers, how about it? Gee whiz, that flashlight nearly blinded me. Captain Bradford. <laughs> All right, you win, kid. Golly whiskers. To the harbor, Johnson, and step on it. Boy, oh boy. Oh, Jiminy Cricket. And part of the enjoyment of listening to the series is the hope that he comes to a very bad end. And yes, he really does say giggling goldfish, but I couldn't find it in time for this article. There's 32 and a half hours of this stuff, and as much as I love the Starship sofa, I don't love it that much. But I feel a day you don't get a chance to say giggling goldfish is a day wasted on this planet. Next is Mrs. Patricia Gregory, a wealthy widow searching for her shipwrecked daughter Joan. It is implied in the series that she is a highly connected US government agent. Captain Tex, Tex Bradford... Mrs. Gregory's right-hand man in her search for Joan. It's also implied in this series that, like her, he's a highly connected US government agent as well as being an, an inventor. Joan Gregory, known by the Euclidians as Cholestra, the 15-year-old daughter of Patricia, found alive and well on the island of Euclidia. Don't you ever laugh? No one on Euclidia laughs, except G-47. And when he laughs, it is only horrible. He is the most brilliant man in the universe, and the most terrible. Is he abusive, mean, unkind to you? G-47 would not trouble to be anything but scornful toward any mere human. What am I, or what are you, or anyone else to a man who has only to raise his hand and destroy a world? So, that's it. Then this weird colony is made up of mad scientists, bent on world conquest by science. I might have known it. G-47 the mad scientist who rules Euclidia. Well, if I could move my arms, I could shake hands with this gentleman. I think that will not be necessary. In fact, it would not be advisable. Golly, Whiskers, he can talk. It's a relief to hear English spoken in this strange place. This strange place? Uh, Madame is mistaken. This is a perfectly natural place. You three are the strange elements here. Well, I guess you're right at that. We seem to have intruded upon something that's a little bit beyond our depth. What's it all about, Professor? Oh, do not apply to me the title you confer upon your petty educators in what you so grandly choose to call your world. World indeed. Why, you poor innocents cannot even dream of the world as it is given to us to know it. Now, I will introduce myself. I am called G-47. G where? No, G-47. Is this real, Tex? It is, but no one back home will believe us. Elaine the commander of the submarine fleet of Euclidia, who becomes a member of the Gregory Parter during the series. And I must mention the taciturn skipper, who only speaks in single words. Everything ship-shape, skipper? Aye. Uh, we don't know what our course is to be, but for the time being, we're chasing a radio message that probably came from somewhere in the Hawaiian Islands. 
So just hold the general course on the regular lane until I change it. All right. Uh, we have a new hand aboard. He'll help me with the radio. I'll fix it with sparks, and we can split a watch with you. All right. Better turn in now, Skipper. You can take over after daylight, and I'll join you in the chart room for some skull practice on navigation to imaginary points. Uh, we've got to locate a magic island. Who? All of us. Nuts. Who? Everybody. Well, maybe you're right, Skipper. But just the same, that's what we're looking for. Well, see you at breakfast. Uh, will you join us in Mrs. Gregory's cabin? Aye. That's all, Skipper. You can shove off. Aye. Magic. Island. Nuts. <laughs> I don't blame the Skipper much at that. The Euclidians were an early 20th century dystopian technology comprised of a co colony of scientists and selected specialists and prisoners rescued from ships or planes that Euclidia had scuttled or wrecked, or, in the case of the Gregory party, individuals that G-47 had deliberately lured or recru recruited to Euclidia by one clever ruse or another. The rescuees were retained or discarded by Euclidians based on their previous training, talents or skills, but served as slaves while on Euclidia. The Euclidians were ruled by the mad scientist G47, who aimed to utilise Euclidean technology to take over the rest of the world. There were approximately 200 Euclidians on the island and over 50 others. All Euclidians were assigned either a name derived from the various early students or followers of the Greek mathematician and astronomer Euclid, or simply an alphanumeric designator based on the hierarchy in Euclidean society. All Euclidians had daily assigned duties and tasks, as well as auxiliary duties. The standard, stranded prisoners agreed to their positions in Euclidean society secured by promises of high positions in the states, provinces, countries and territories of the world once G47 achieved his plans for world domination. Euclidians measured time in seconds rather than minutes and hours in recognition of their value for each second of time. Exactly like your world. No, it isn't exactly like our world, Joan. And I think I know what your mother means. This artificial sunlight apparently has the same results as real sunlight. But it isn't real. Oh, nothing here is real. Did you say nothing? Oh. Well, where did you come from? From whence did the heavens come, or the sea, or the sands of time? Well, who are you? I'm called Cheops, the builder. Well, this is getting back into my ancient history days. I thought they found your tomb in the center of the Great Pyramid. That was Cheops the first, whom the Egyptians called Khufu. From the building of the first or Great Pyramid 5,000 years ago, the blood of Cheops has come down through the centuries. Until now, I, Cheops, the builder of Euclidia stand before you as the architectural wizard of the world. I'm beginning to understand your position here. In your modest way, you are letting us know that the responsibility for the marvelous construction in this weird colony rests on your shoulders. No. Only a fool would carry a burden on his shoulders. I carry them with my intelligence. Well, maybe you're right. But there must have been some strong backs and willing shoulders somewhere along the line when all this construction went on. Uh, now we reach the point which caused me to appear before you. I was studying in my laboratory behind this wall when I heard your careless remark. If we have been mistaken in the nature of our conversation, the fault is entirely mine, Cheops. My mother and Captain Bradford are not familiar with Euclidean regulations. Silence, Cleostra. You needn't shout at her like that, and we need no apologies. What is the reason for appearing out of nothing and giving us your history? Careful, Pat. You need not warn the lady, Captain Bradford. 
There is little harm in the desperate prattle of one who is driven to nervous expressions of complete helplessness. We are not helpless. Please, Mother, it will avail you nothing. You have not forgotten your Euclidean training, Cleostra. Now, if you will allow me a period of silence, I will correct your erroneous impression as to the reality of certain things in Euclidia. We feel that the whole thing is mighty unreal. You'll never change that impression. You may change a great number of your opinions while you are on Euclidia, my precious captain. You have said that your sunlight was not real. We know it isn't. Sunlight doesn't penetrate 400 feet of water and the rock and steel roof and walls of these caves. You see all about you evidence that our sunlight will do everything that can be done with the light and heat of the sun. Yes, we see that all right. But what will the effect of this artificial light be on future generations? How long can you sustain life under these conditions? That, you must ask Thales, as the production of electrical energy is within his province. However, for your immediate information... Thales has established the fact that this light in which you now stand will prolong the span of human life to well over a century. Tex, do you suppose that's possible? Well, we sure can't prove that it isn't possible. I have heard the scientists speak of experiments along those lines, and they have been most successful. Precisely. As for the reality of the construction around you, these arches, palaces, bridges, and walls, which I have designed and created, will retain their present form and usefulness for a period of 50,000 years. 50,000 years? How can you prove that? You are a man of science, are you not, Captain Bradford? Well, I thought I was until I came here. At least you will recognize the value of one of my construction materials. I have unearthed the greatest secret of the ancient engineers. I have tempered copper. Tempered copper? But scientists have been trying that for thousands of years, and they've all failed miserably. You will enter my laboratory. I wish you to see a little experiment with the tempered copper. The Euclidians possessed an extraordinary advanced technology, the main examples being detection beams. Euclidia's wide-spectrum detection beams had a range of approximately 200 miles. The universal prism reflector, even more powerful, the Euclidians' highly directional universal prism reflector could detects and track object, objects as far away as 8,000 miles, but only in daylight. Euclidean kelp cloth. The island hosted a special textile mill which produced a Euclidean kelp cloth synthesized from seaweed and treated with a secret liquid formula. The resulting cloth was impervious to radar waves, magnetic waves, sound waves and radio waves, and light waves. I wonder if it was waterproof. <laughs> magnetic fog ring Euclidia's magnetic fog ring was powerful enough to pull in ships as large as 200 feet in length and from far away as 200 yards to Euclidia's piers Euclidia's artificial magnetised ring of fog served to disguise the island from sea lane or air lane traffic magnetic sound deadening paint Throughout the island, the Euclidians employ a remarkably effective sound-deadening paint. Its magnetic properties also serve to provide a barrier to other types of waves. Magnetic elevators. Euclidians elevators employed arrays of electromagnets and permanent magnets for both propulsion and braking. They could be individually controlled at the unit level from Euclidia's two master control chambers, one on the Magic Island and one on Euclidia itself on the ocean floor. Nutriscope. The island employed a nutriscope allowing it to see under and through the water at a great distance. 
Strataplane. Euclidians could also deploy high altitude, thousand mile an hour strataplanes to intercept or bring down threats. Their strataplanes were also capable of acting as submarines. Strataplanes had a theoretical range of 10,000 miles. Transparent steel. Many of Euclidia's structures and all of Euclidia's watercraft and aircraft were constructed of steel, steel with transparent properties that could be invoked by electrically or magnetically changing, charging the panels. Food pellets. Euclidians had developed food pellets which provided all the flavour and dietary nutrition of a, few, of a full meal. Euclidean submarine fleet. Euclidia's 800-foot submarines were docked in undersea locks between, magic, between the Magic Islands piers at about 8 fathoms, or 50 feet, below sea level. The submarine locks were accessed from the 5th level of Euclidia's Magic Island underground complex. Euclidean submarines docked by screwing themselves into Euclidia's locks. Euclidean submarines could reach a speed of 40 knots below the surface. Silent gas turbine propelled, Euclidean submarines had a range of approximately 8,000 miles. Euclidean submarines were clad in a special treatment steel. Each of Euclidean submarines were commanded by a female commander only and a single crew member. The commander? That beautiful girl? Yes. Now quiet. So we are to have the charming Cleostra with us. SE1 will enjoy that. He will probably find some excuse for making your journey anything but pleasant. I am ready, Commander. So I observe. And I have also G-47's instructions regarding this uh, ballast. You mean me? As you are the only object in this chamber possessing visibility, but no other apparent useful quality... It should be natural that I referred to you. Say, now you look here. Harry, say no more. I am sorry, Commander, but this gentleman is not accustomed to our ways. He knows nothing of our activities. Obviously, he knows nothing about anything. G-47 prepared me for the meeting with him by saying his intelligence was zero. But it appears now that even the science of mathematics must be overthrown. It is possible to subtract from zero. Say, I'm going to... Silence, fool. You will speak when spoken to. Cleostra? Yes, Commander. You will bring this into the lock. Observation is permitted. Questions are not. I will summon you when ready. G-47 is coming to give you a final instruction. Well, I hope I've managed to pique your interest enough for you to go to archive.org where you can download all 130 episodes for free. Next time I'll be bringing my superpowers to bear on Superman, Fantastic Four and the Blue Beetle. And that was Theatre of the Mind. There you go. Put a link on the Paul site as well. Do pop over there. Like it's a, it's a great picture of when, when Paul was just like a, a sweet cherub of a child and now, and like I say, ooh, Paul, eh, time... Not give you a battering. <laughs> Listen, Paul, thank you so much. Well, that is today's show in this windswept northeast England. It is chucking it down, man. It's unreal how wet and cold and horrible it is from just a few weeks ago, a few days ago, should I say. Like I say, don't forget if you know if you like what we do, please drop a donation. We're always you know keen to keep this good girl, this old girl 
going high in flying far. Do pop over and listen to Tales to Terrify. That would be fantastic. I'm sure Larry would appreciate it. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Starship Sofa. A badly recent procedure initiated. 